Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Sobolewski, and this is episode two in the Agitation series. It is focused on non-pharmacologic interventions in the management of agitated children. This episode is a co-production of the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center whose mission is to minimize morbidity and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the emergency continuum. Special thanks also go out to my co-producer for this episode and this series, Dennis Wren. In episode one of this series, we discussed differentiating organic from psychiatric causes of agitation in children. But what about the patient who's already agitated and is a potential danger to themselves or to the ED staff? Do we redirect, restrain, sedate? The learning objectives of this episode focus on non-pharmacologic interventions. So we'll discuss age-appropriate management strategies for agitated children and how we can safely use redirection, holds, and restraints and reiterate how these are just temporary measures. Let's begin by talking about how we can set up a safe environment for agitated patients. You want to remove any dangerous objects or equipment, and this ideally should be done proactively. So if you've got an environment where you're going to see a lot of mental health patients and they're going to stay there for a while, these are things that you should do ahead of time, not after the patient arrives. So you should have no sharp objects in the room. Ideally, if you can, have walls with rounded corners and install heavy or immovable furniture to prevent the patient from barricading themselves in the room or throwing them. Doors that swing outward make it easier for staff to get into the room. It's a good idea to have tamper-resistant fixtures and shower rods if those are in the room to begin with. The ceiling should be high and not drop ceilings, so with the panels. You want rooms that are placed away from easy points of egress, so entrances and exits. No glass mirrors and TVs should be placed behind plexiglass. If you're setting up a new space, having an open floor plan and easy sight lines for visibility is a great idea. If you have multi-purpose rooms that can be used for medical or psychiatric reasons, you may want to install locks or even garage door style rolling doors that you can lock in place in front of monitors and wall mounted equipment. In our emergency department, we have supply shelves that are a pass-through that can be accessed and stocked outside of the room. This environment should also be proactive in that you remove any triggers, which can upset patients further. Temporarily, this may be family or caregivers. You want to be able to dim the lights and minimize noise, especially for neurodivergent children or children with sensory processing issues. Presence of security staff or law enforcement may make things worse if the child feels threatened. Conversely, they may need to be present for the patient and staff safety. Having enough sitters, and if you have them, behavioral safety specialists available, is a key measure to keeping patients safe and reducing agitation. And what if a patient arrives to the ED in handcuffs in police custody? So this can happen. Patients can be placed under arrest or apprehended if they are violent. Police officers in handcuffs should both remain in place during the initial assessment. Handcuffs can be removed by the police once the patient has been assessed and is deemed safe to do so. Before the removal of handcuffs, you may need to give medication or start other means of non-pharmacologic agitation de-escalation 
for the patient and the staff's protection. I think it's really important to recognize the warning signs of potential violence before escalation occurs. Prioritize the assessment of escalating patients as soon as possible. Delays can worsen the situation. Prioritize the safety of patients, staff, and others present, like other patients in the unit. Ensure the patient cannot obstruct the exit route. Try to avoid excessive stimulation. And when you're meeting the patient initially, avoid aggressive postures and prolonged eye contact. Request help early on from security personnel if the situation is deteriorating or if you expect things will worsen quickly. If the patient has an existing behavioral safety plan, deploy it as early as possible. This is especially important in neurodivergent children and patients with diagnoses such as intermittent explosive disorder. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about verbal de-escalation. These techniques admittedly take years to master, but they are incredibly important to de-escalating an agitated child. And so what is de-escalation? Well, it is the act of responding to a child's agitation in a way that controls, diffuses, and or calms the situation. The EMSC Innovation and Improvement Center has some excellent resources and tip sheets. I'll include the links to de-escalation techniques in the show notes. Basically, de-escalation involves tracing the situation back to the point where things got out of control and addressing the root of the behavior rather than simply trying to quiet the child. Begin by stating your role and use both your own name and the patient's name so you personalize the interaction. For the child that's acutely agitated, avoid just trying to reason with them. When you are agitated, the prefrontal cortex is suppressed by the cortisol and epinephrine-induced fight-or-flight response. This physiological state is due to a perceived threat. De-escalation then therefore involves reassurance that the child is safe. You remain calm and make sure that the child's basic physical needs are met. Validate the child's feelings, not their actions. When a kid is overwhelmed by emotions, it's best to acknowledge their feelings. You could say something like, I bet you're angry. I can see how upset that made you. This establishes a common ground to begin. Be patient. Listen. And then listen more. Try not to reply too quickly. Try to validate and understand. Responding initially with statements like, I think I understand. That was difficult for you. Tell me more. The patient may not want advice or examples of anything. They just want you to listen and validate how they feel. Give them time to state their concerns and avoid giving opinions on issues and grievances beyond your control. If you are in a position to communicate this, it's important that children understand the error of their behavior and give them alternate ways of managing their emotions. It's okay to be angry but it's not okay to punch a wall, for instance. It's also important to be a child's advocate. An agitated child may feel scared, threatened, or embarrassed. These are powerful emotions. If they're having an outburst in triage, for instance, let the child know that you are there to help them in a public way. Be their advocate. Escort them safely to a private room or area for discussion. It's important to be calm, empathetic, and non-judgmental in your approach. But you also need to set appropriate boundaries. 
You can provide food, drinks, or other assistance as required. You know, seating, access to a telephone to call a parent or guardian, and address their physical needs like going to the bathroom. Offer oral medications early to alleviate the patient's stress, especially if they have them in their medical administration record. We'll talk more about pharmacologic means in the next episode in this series. All of these techniques allow assessment of the patient's responsiveness to verbal de-escalation, and it allows you to get a more immediate assessment of their risk of harm to themselves or others. Now, if it's necessary, a show of force may be deployed to keep the patient and team members safe. This could involve security staff in full view providing backup to the clinician or team member while trying to interview or negotiate with the patient. In these situations, adopting an overly casual posture may not be advised. This show of force is used when verbal de-escalation is ineffective or inappropriate as well. When deployed systematically and proactively, security personnel may help persuade the patient to cooperate with the appropriate clinical interventions. Otherwise, physical restraint and or chemical restraint may be required to ensure the safety of the patient. Most of all, take your time, be empathetic, and be patient. Now, sometimes patients fail verbal de-escalation and Physical restraints may be necessary to keep them and team members safe. The use of physical restraints should be taken very seriously. You must take the utmost care in keeping the patient and staff safe. All available alternative options should be considered before administering physical restraint, as this infringes on a person's autonomy and dignity. We must also acknowledge that there's racial and other disparities in the use of physical and chemical restraints. We need to be cognizant of this and our patient population when making the decision to employ these techniques. So manual restraint should only be performed by staff trained and certified in the use of these techniques. These are typically temporary as other methods of physical restraint are being prepared. It's beyond the scope of this podcast episode to describe these in detail, but these include things such as a therapeutic hold. Physical restraints are any manual method, device, or equipment that immobilizes or reduces the ability of a patient to move their body freely. We should also mention seclusion, which often goes in concert with physical restraints, is a form of involuntary confinement. You know, This is the act of placing a patient alone in a room or area from which the patient is physically prevented from leaving. Ultimately, you should never leave an agitated patient alone by themselves, and you need to have a sitter, who is a healthcare provider that is constantly observing this patient. This need for one-on-one observation is a major challenge for EDs and healthcare systems from a staffing standpoint, but it's critically important. Now, in general, physical restraints are indicated when there's an actual or high risk of harm to self, others, or property, where verbal de-escalation and other treatments are inappropriate or ineffective. You should never use physical restraints if the patient is medically unstable, if there's a risk of harm to the staff when applying the restraints, and again, if other strategies are more appropriate. Lots of different types of restraints available, everything from soft limb restraints, elbow splints, and mittens, but when we think of restraints in the emergency department, we often think of leather restraints on all four limbs. Let me review the technique a little bit with the knowledge that this protocol 
may vary from location to location and facility to facility. You need to be familiar with what is done at your institution. Again, assure that everyone is safe. This includes having adequate numbers of trained personnel with protective equipment. Do not attempt physical restraint if you have inadequate staff available. If a patient attempts to escape or does escape from the emergency department, don't chase them down by yourself. Call the police. You should have policies and practices in place to deal with any of these occurrences. When doing physical restraints, you should ideally have a six-member team, one for each extremity, one for the head, and one to apply the restraints. The provider at the head of the bed should have airway skills if possible. Allocate roles and state the plan of action ahead of time. Decide on a trigger word or phrase to be used to initiate action. You want to remove all objects which are potentially dangerous from staff members. This includes pens, stethoscopes, lanyards, etc., and don appropriate PPE, gloves, face masks, Kevlar sleeves, etc. Calmly explain to the patient that restraints are being applied to ensure the safety of themselves and others. It is important to emphasize the restraints are not being used as punishment, but rather have therapeutic value. Give the patient a final chance to comply with requests with the restraint team in attendance. This is another example of show of force, which I alluded to earlier. When you initiate physical restraint, have the patient supine, arms beside their body, legs extended. An alternative could be to have one arm up, which reduces patient movement as well. Medical-grade restraint should be applied securely to each extremity and tied to the solid frame of the bed, not the side rails. Lower extremities, if possible, should be tied to the opposite side of the bed to prevent flailing or generation of lateral force. Avoid neck or torso restraints. These can be unsafe for the patient. Avoid hobble restraints, which is like tying hands and legs together or behind the back. I've seen spit hoods applied by pre-hospital professionals, but these cover the face and can encircle the neck, representing a possible airway concern. Again, explain to the patient what is happening at all times in a step-by-step and direct fashion. After the restraints have been applied, the patient should be closely monitored. Restraints obviously are not applied indefinitely and multiple reevaluations should be done to determine when it is safe to remove them. Document appropriate reassessments per institutional and regional policy, like every 30 minutes or every hour. Documentation should include the reason for the restraint, alternative therapies attempted, assessment of potential injuries and any complications of the restraint, a monitoring plan, thresholds for further interventions, ongoing sedation options, and a sedation chart, You should also elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees if possible. This can decrease aspiration risk. Do not include pillows or loose blankets. Assure that the patient has access to appropriate fluid maintenance and toileting needs. Make sure you're addressing concerns for development of pressure sores, which can set up pretty quickly. Removing the restraints is done as soon as possible, once the patient is calm and or sedated. You want to remove one limb at a time. Start with a leg, then the contralateral arm. This is followed by the other leg, and finally the final arm. You are reassessing at each step 
to assure that the patient is safe and not escalating. Physical restraints can be a bridge to safely administering chemical restraints. More on that in episode three of this series. But again, physical restraints are a temporary measure that infringes on the patient's autonomy and dignity and should be used as a last resort, if at all. All right, so that's all for this episode, number two in the agitation series. Hopefully you learned a bit more about how to safely de-escalate an agitated child, as well as how you can keep them and ourselves safe in a stressful environment. The upcoming third episode in the series will focus on pharmacological management of acute agitation. This episode was, again, a co-production with the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center. You can learn more about their mission at emscimprovement.center. If you'd like to give feedback on this episode, send it my way. An email, a comment on the blog, a review on your favorite podcast site, a direct message on Twitter. However you want to send me feedback, I will take it. This will help me deliver better educational content. You can also check out PEMblog.com. I've been writing stuff there for a long time. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.